Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed we're breaking all the rules here good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday may 9th 2008 this week episode 81 comes to you from beautiful coriopolis pennsylvania my name is joe hughes or radio joe and here with me in the studio is the wingman chris boisel Good afternoon, Jeff. Good afternoon, Chris. The Z-Man is out. He's out of action this week. He is sick. He won't be able to make it with us this week, but uh, we're just going to have to move on without him and look forward to his return next week, I believe, uh, or maybe the week after. I think he might be on the road again next week. He was on the road, tried to get back, couldn't make it. It is uh, my great pleasure, though, to see that our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, is on the line. Let's say hello to Dieter. Good afternoon, Dieter. How are you? Just fine. Good day. Good afternoon in Pittsburgh. Good. And I, I like that Beethoven in the background there. All it's, right. it's always good. <laughs> you know your cue. Well, we're going to bring you back That's in right. about halfway through and uh, then again at the end of the show if that works for you. Okay. We uh, Today's segments include the microband trivia question. And we've got Terry Brennan with Cam Rodden Associates. We are on a roll here, and we want to keep on rolling. We brought in another great guest this week. We will then uh, take a little break at the midpoint and then come back at the end with the round table. We'll bring everybody in to round things up. We've been working on the www.iaqradio.com website, and uh, we've been putting a new blog up every week after the show, adding new information every week. And we encourage listeners to go to iaqradio.com. Before we get started, we have to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. To contact the show, you can call 724-444-7444, enter our show ID, which is 1547 and then just press 1 to join the show. You can also stream the show through the Internet with or without downloading the TalkShoe software, and then you can also text message us questions. By uh, You can also download the software at TalkShoe.com, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E.com. They've got a lot of interesting podcasts there on a lot of different subjects. 
And of course, you can direct connect from the widget we send with invitations or through the iaqradio.com website. We also appreciate questions and uh, suggestions. You can email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Cliff's email is cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. And we also want to remind people you can get IAQ Council renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. We're also working on renewal credits for a couple other associations. Last but not least, please don't forget to visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at IAQ Training. Looks like I'm going to have to turn it over to myself for this week's microband trivia question. All right, Chris, looks like uh, we've got a winner from last week, and uh, and actually uh, someone mined an old one, maybe a couple. I've got to get a uh, I've got to get a, a decision from the Z man on a few of these, but I know I can say that uh, Subuthia Garajan was the first to answer last week's question, and the correct answer was a biotoxin. The uh, question we were looking for was uh, related to Dr. Shoemaker's appearance on last week's show. The week before, Cliff had asked a question where it was a uh, reference to a biblical reference from show number 79. How could one of the great plagues have been explained by science today? And Matt Fredrickson, mind that one, he uh, came up with the algae bloom. I believe that's going to be the correct answer, although we'll have to get the final ruling from the Z-man when he gets back. And Matt also mined another old one. We'll have to have uh, the Z-man check that one out, and uh, we will update the website. To answer the trivia question, go to the iaqradio.com website, click on Trivia, and then uh, you can answer the question there, and we will be sending out prizes to our two winners. And uh, let's give uh, Matt a little uh, incentive here. If we get it today, we'll go with the 10 uh, IAQ Radio Lucky Dollars maybe and uh, get him a good prize out for his efforts. Okay, today's first guest is Terry Brennan of Camrodden Associates. He's a member of the HPAC Engineering's Editorial Advisory Board and has studied building sciences since the early 1970s. He's a president of Cam Rodden Associates, a research, consulting, and training company that provides research and problem-solving services to public agencies, architects, construction firms, building owners and managers, school districts, and homeowners. He has a bachelor's degree in physics and a master's degree in environmental science, and he has written numerous technical papers and is a member of the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers. In September of 2000, an article on residential IAQ problems, Time Magazine referred to him as one of the top building scientists in the country. We've got some intro music for Terry. There's a leak in the soul building, and my soul... Now there's a leak in the soul building, and my soul, I got another building, building that pay by hand. Now there's a leak in the soul building, and my soul, I got another building, building that pay by hand. Now there's a leak in the soul building, and my soul, I got another building, building that pay by hand. 
All right, there's a leak in this little. We're going to bring Terry on in one minute, but I just realized I messed up the microband trivia question. I didn't put it out. So what we'll do is we'll put it out halfway through the show. Cliff gave me one for this week, but uh, I got so caught up in giving out the right answers from old ones, I forgot to give this week. So we'll get it halfway through the show. Hello, Terry. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Joe. Great to have you on. I don't know if you've ever heard that intro music before or not. It's it's uh, one of my favorites. What is that? I hadn't heard it. It's wonderful. We, it's called The Voice of Atlanta, and uh, what we'll do is we'll send you a copy. I've got it on my iPod now. I listen to it on my way home. But uh, Oh, that's great. We only pull that out for special guests. You and uh, Joe Steve Burrick are the only two that I believe we've used that. Well, maybe one other, but... Uh, Welcome. Good to have you on IAQ Radio. And uh, what I'd like to do is get a little start on, you know, on your business here. And, and where, first of all, did the name Cam Rodden Associates come from? Well, it's actually the name of a tiny little crossroads in central New York that was named by uh, apparently a great-great-great-grandfather of mine, um, who was a Welch stonemason who came over to build locks on the Erie Canal. Uh, wow. The, the, the name is from a Welch word that means the fellowship of Welch. That's interesting. So you uh, you have a long family history up there in the, in the New York area. We were talking before the show. You're out of uh, Westmoreland, New York? Yes. And your family's been there for many years, it sounds like. Um, yeah, on my mother's side, apparently, we go back to um, the, the rowdy route, uh, Dutch Huguenots who settled uh, New Amsterdam in the early 1600s. Interesting. Now, you, you have a degree in physics and mathematics, and, and you've been in the indoor air quality business since way back in 1985. What, what got you into the indoor air quality business? Um, the oil embargo of the 1970s. Uh, uh, kind of did it. Okay. We, I uh, I got interested um, in the '70s in uh, in environmental studies. Actually, when I was still even training in physics, I became interested in environmental sciences. And uh, and when the oil embargo happened, and suddenly we were talking about hey, energy to heat buildings and the the environmental impacts of uh, um, that energy, I thought, well, hey, you know, I, I grew up in a building family. I know something about physics. I could probably design and build houses that don't use much energy. And when you start doing that, you make them really airtight. And if you haven't thought about the ventilation, you'll find yourself fixing problems pretty quick. Uh, okay. Uh, Dr. Wow will love hearing that one. Uh, he's been <laughs> preaching ventilation for years here. He, we've got the school, uh, the the Church of Building Sciences and uh, Dr. Wiles, the Church of Ventilation. In a speaker bio for Building Energy 06, you were referred to as the Abby Hoffman of Building Science. Why is that? I don't know. <laughs> Cliff sent that question, and I'm not sure exactly what the reason behind it was, but uh, apparently you were here in Pittsburgh at... Uh, the recent, I think it was the ACI, or no, this was an 06. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it was down there. And, and I, I, somebody just asked me about that, and I said, hey, did you know that you're the Abby Hoffman of, build, of building science? And I said, no, I didn't know that. 
I guess it goes back to the fact that you've been involved in this, you know, in this industry as a, a pioneer and uh, for many, many years. And I understand you started in, in looking at your CV. You did a lot of radon early on. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that? Oh, yeah. The, the radon work I got involved in, um, I was working uh, as part of the field team on a, a research project that the uh, New York State Energy Research and Development Authority funded um, back in like 1982, 1983. And the project was to find 60 houses and do blower door testing on them, see how airtight they were, and and monitor a number of indoor air uh, contaminant levels and also to uh, we did a bunch of tracer gas testing and to see how air, how what the ventilation rates were actually and I had been hired to do analysis on the ventilation data and uh, and it turned out that something like 10 of the 60 houses that we studied had radon levels higher than four people curious per liter and uh, um, the health physicist who had made the radon measurements when once we found high level said, well, I don't know how to fix this stuff. Ask, ask Terry. He's a, he's a builder, and, he, and he's got a degree in physics. So, so. <laughs> so you kind of fell into it, basically. Yeah, so it was accidental. I, I ended up uh, taking some computer fans and making little depressurization systems for under the slab and, and just blowing the air out the rim joist, and it, it worked. It worked great. Now, this was back in, you're saying, the mid to early 80s. Was the yeah, this is 1982, 1983. When was that four Pico Curies per liter, um, when was that established? I, apparently back then. I don't recall it being that early, but when did it come into uh, the regular? Um, back then, ASHRAE, in, in the ASHRAE 62 Um, boy, what would it have been back then, 62 watt, or, or in the ASHRAE ventilation standard? My recollection is ASHRAE was suggesting two picocuries per liter, and the Department of Energy out in uh, Colorado in the mining tailing houses uh, out there, they had established uh, a, an action level of five picocuries per liter. And that was the, those were the only two things in the literature back then. So in the U.S. anyway. Do you know off the top um, of your head when EPA came in with the four? I think that was right around 84 or so. It's my recollection. But I, mm, my memory is a whole lot like hippos rising from murky swamps these days. So <laughs> I can understand. <laughs> well, let's go back to a, a more recent project because I found this was really an interesting project to me. I don't know how many people have had a chance to do uh, indoor air quality or building uh, building science investigations in a banana ripening and uh, I guess it's a banana ripening facility. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, yeah, banana ripening room and what was happening there, why they had you there and uh, what you were doing? Well, that was pretty, and it's kind of interesting. It, we you know, we, we've been thinking about air tightening buildings for a long time, but when 
we got a call to go and see, see about air sealing a banana ripening room. We discovered that they were already really airtight, and they wanted to make them even more airtight. Uh, so we, we did some uh, pressure testing on them to see how airtight they were and to help find the leaks. And the, the reason they wanted to make them air, well, the reason they make them airtight to begin with is uh, they, they pick and ship these things when they're um, green. Uh, so, so they they don't uh, undergo damage, and they have a longer sh- shelf life once they they can stay on the supermarket shelf longer and have a better chance of getting blocked. So, so they ship them green. They put them in these chambers just before they ship them to the grocer, and they they uh, uh, put a little ethylene in the air in the the ripening room. And ethylene is a hormone that that plants use to tell fruit to ripen. It's uh, the same thing that uh, tells leaves to uh, turn red and orange in the fall and drop off. So, so they do that, and it tells the bananas to ripen. And what they were doing that they wanted, that, where they wanted to make these chambers even more airtight than they already were, is they were adding a second gas at the end of the ethylene process to uh, tell it to, to tell the bananas to stop ripening so that they wouldn't continue to ripen and they would get another two or three days of shelf life uh, in the supermarket before they would start uh, getting brown and going bad. Now, you they were using a tracer gas, tracer gas method. Can you just quickly define for us what that is? Uh, and then we'll talk about how you used the fan pressurization method to do this testing more quickly. Um, yeah. Well, tracer gas is a gas that you can that use to that something that you can measure, some something that you can measure the concentration in the air pretty easily, and you can do sort of two different kinds of tests with tracer gases. You can um, do one that tells you what the ventilation rate is, and you you do that either by injecting some tracer gas and then measuring over time and watching the concentration go down and based on the rate it goes down uh, you can you can make an estimate of the ventilation rate um, or you could inject at a constant rate and measure the the steady state concentration and calculate the uh, ventilation rate from that the, the other reason that you can use other way you can use tracer gas is to track airflows. I'm thinking of one case we had years ago where people were complaining of uh, they could smell auto exhaust on the fourth floor of a multifamily building. There was uh, a garage uh, under the the building, but people on the first, second, and third floor weren't complaining about it. We wanted to demonstrate that while we think it's auto exhaust coming from the garage and it's going up through uh, the plumbing chases and it comes out on the fourth floor because there's no other floor above it for it to come out on and uh, there's it's capped at the top of the at the ceiling level so we injected uh, carbon dioxide in the garage and within within 45 seconds had carbon dioxide coming in into the uh, um, cabinet under the sink where the the pipes were coming through. Do you and commonly use acid. carbon dioxide as a tracer gas? Yeah, we, we do use carbon dioxide as a tracer gas. Um, and the reasons we do are 
we 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 have um, monitors that detect carbon dioxide that are relatively inexpensive and pretty accurate. Um, and I can I can get almost in almost any city I can get cylinders of carbon dioxide from uh, um, local uh, gas suppliers uh, pretty inexpensively. So easy to get the gas and easy to measure it. So we use that quite a lot. The, the major disadvantage to it is that my, my exhaled breath is pretty close to 40,000 parts per million carbon dioxide. So if I breathe on the monitor, I kind of goof up my measurement. I see. What other gases do you, have you used? Um, sulfur hexafluoride is one that we've used quite a lot over the years. Um, and it, it's, we, we have, um, well, we've monitored it in two ways. We have um, infrared spectrometers that, from uh, um, Moran that we use to monitor that continuously at parts per million level. And then we can uh, we have used syringes to collect samples and use a GC mass spec to do things at parts per billion level. Okay, so when they're doing this in the banana ripening rooms, um, why was it taking longer? Were they using the second method you discussed, or uh, they were they were using the uh, tracer de decay method, and they were using sulfur hexafluoride. Okay. And because these rooms are so airtight, it would take them 12 or 14 or 20 hours before they would get enough tracer decay to get a, a good estimate of the ventilation rate. All right. And then you went in and used fan pressurization methods to do this more quickly. Can you explain what, met what that fan pressurization method is and how that got this done more quickly? Yeah. The... The uh, fan pressurization is it's the same thing as a, a blower door test. A blower door test is a, a specific way of doing the, the fan pressurization test. And what 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 it comes down to is if you've got a box, whether it's a cardboard box or a, a room or a whole building uh, or a, um, a banana ripening room, um, there are some air leaks in it. And if you blow and measured amount of air into the room and it will pressurize the room just enough so that the same amount of air that's going through the fan will leak out against the resistance to airflow of all the little cracks and holes in the, in the room, in the enclosure. And the tighter that is, the bigger pressure difference you get for any given airflow. So it's a way of making a, a measure of how airtight is the box. And so that's what we ended up doing uh, at, with the banana ripening rooms was pressurizing them using uh, duct blasters. And because it, it generally would only take us um, like 100 cubic feet a minute to uh, pressurize the, these rooms enough to get a good measurement. Okay, so, so you weren't using a blower door. You were using a duct blaster in this case. Yeah, we were using a duct blaster because we could get lower air measured airflows and, and that's that's what we needed was a pretty low airflow i see and you were able to how quickly were you able to do the testing then oh you can do the testing in about uh 20 minutes excellent now 
I just wanted to review that because a lot of the other work you do revolves around, you know, fan pressurization, blower door test, tracer gas method. So I wanted to get the background done, and I thought the uh, banana ripening room, even you know, we could be doing the same thing in any number of uh, types of structures or enclosures. So I wanted to get the, uh, the background information done first. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about is that, you know, in going through your CV, it, it appears you're using a lot of computer modeling programs as a part of your building investigations and design. Can you tell us a little bit about what programs you're using and, and how well they're working for you? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, probably the, the computer programs that people could get that are the most useful are CONTAM, which you can get from uh, um, National Institute of Science and Technology. Uh, and uh, and it's, a, it's a little program you can draw right on the screen. It's like a little drawing program. You can draw rooms and wall cavities and chases and ductwork and fans and build up an, an airflow model of uh, a building or parts of a building, and cal and do calculations to figure out what pressure differences you'll have and what um, airflows you'll have, say, between a room and the wall cavity and the return plenum and the airflow going through the um, ductwork. That, that turns out to be a very useful program in both in design and in trying to figure out how to solve uh, a crazy airflow problem in a building, an existing building. What was the name of that again, Terry? Uh, it's CONTAM. It, it, I can't remember what the, you know, it stands for something, but I don't remember what it is. Is that C-O-N-T-A-M? C-O-N-T-A-M, as in contaminant. Got it. Okay. Yeah. But they, they, they made up some bunch of words that, that out that I, that I don't remember <laughs> okay just wanted to uh, get it out there for the listeners because it sounds like a great tool yes it's a very it's really a very useful uh, modeler for for dealing with airflow issues um and in an existing building if you take your blower door in there and you pressurize the corridor and then measure the pressure difference across each doorway and the pressure difference between inside and outside and between the, the rooms and the cavity above the ceiling and between that and the attic, you can figure out a lot about where the air leaks are. And you could you can actually take that data and use that to calibrate a CONTAM model so that you will have a, an airflow model of the building that um, has something to, to do with reality beyond theory because you've, you're you're you've sized things, your inputs in the, you, you change the inputs in your model until the model is predicting what you actually measured in the field. Sounds like and a great tool. You can, yeah, it's great. Then you can, then you can say, well, what if we put in a 5,000 CFM fan? What would that do for us? And you can calculate it and you're probably going to be at least within a factor of 50% or 80% or something like that. But it, it's in the right ballpark for actually fixing a problem. Well, let's let's take a real-world example here. Um, in one of the, I can't remember which project it was, but there was a problem where a demising wall cavity 
was drawing in outdoor air from a leak in a return air plenum. It sounds like that's oh, something yeah. that you could model really well. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there and, and how you solved the problem? And then I have a follow-up. Yep. The, this was, um, it was a, a hotel on uh, the Gulf Coast, and it was a renovation of uh, an old, um, I think it was a 10-story brick building. And when the, the brick veneer had quite a few air leaks in it. The brick, it was actually an eight-inch thick brick wall. And, and, but now it's all covered up with, uh, that, you know, gypsum board and steel studs, and you can't get to that. The air handler was uh, a ceiling-hung air handler in a, uh, in a drop ceiling just as you walked into the door going into the room and the bathroom would be on the left and if you looked up you see a return grill and if you look into the return grill you see a cavity just a, a, a return plenum and the air handlers up there with the return side open to the uh, cavity and then there's ducted supply that goes over to a, a high wall grill that blows uh, the conditioned air out through into the hotel room and the the cavity is if you've stuck your head up in those things, you know, you know that, the, wow, the, maybe the joints in the gypsum board aren't taped. Maybe the gypsum board is a half inch short at the top of the wall cavity. Wherever a pipe or a wire comes through, there's a big hole. And so there was a series of leaks that connected this uh, through the interior wall to the demising wall. And so the, the suction side of the air handler was pulling high, humid, Golf coast air through the brick the brick wall and then into the end of the um, demising wall and the demising wall had vinyl wallpaper on it so we're dragging hot humid air across the back of gypsum board that's been chilled by the air conditioner and has a vapor barrier on the cold side so that all just grew mold in that wall cavity perfect scenario for mold all right so yeah. now you've got you can either fix it the right way. Well, I shouldn't say the right way. You, you've yeah. got a couple options to fix this, right? What would be the worst case uh, fix for this problem? Well, what, what ended up uh, happening on a number of the floors was the, the rooms were gutted. And it's because the mold growth was uh, so heavy in the wall cavities that it was not something that, that any of us wanted to try and say, save. But then there were other other parts of the hotel, other floors of the hotel where we had musty odor, but we didn't have heavy mold growth. If we, if we felt the wallpaper for, uh, a lot of times you can feel the colonies under the wallpaper when you're getting that. Uh, and if we would, uh, take a razor blade and peel back some of the wallpaper, we, we wouldn't see that particular problem very strongly. In those cases, what we did, and actually what we did in the, we did this in the rooms that were gutted too when we put them back together. We, we took um, a four inch duct and we ran it from the supply of the air conditioner into the demising wall and sealed it in there so that we were getting about 50 cubic feet a minute of 
air that had been dehumidified by the air conditioner, uh, blown into the uh, demising walls. And when when that was happening, we'd be drying out the demising wall and preventing the intake of air, that, reducing the amount of air that would be coming in. Plus, we sealed, we air sealed all the, the holes in the return pump. So it was a combination of, well, let's stop as much of the air being sucked out of the demising wall as possible by the return, and let's blow some dry air in there and dry things out. <laughs> and so that, <laughs> yeah, but the, the mechanical engineer gave us a real funny look when we suggested that. I'll bet. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's take some of this conditioned air and blow it into this wall ca- into this cavity here. And uh... yeah, and we we left the we we showed the uh, the building from ground guy at the hotel how to use a moisture meter, and uh, we made up a pattern or a number of points. Here's where we want you to take moisture measurements, moisture content measurements for the every day for the next uh, two weeks. We want to see if this is working, if this is actually drying out the, the gypsum board. And so he dutifully went around and made these measurements every day in about a dozen rooms. And, <laughs> and sure enough, we could see that the moisture content was starting to come down. And, that, and then he called and he said, we're getting little insects all over in all the rooms where we're doing this. And I said, whoa, well, cool. Could, could you send one up to me? You know, so they <laughs> I was going to, I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. <laughs> and and uh, they sent them up to me, and it turned out to be book lice, which are uh, these little insects that are, you know, maybe a sixteenth of an inch long, and they, they're, they're mold eaters. They eat mold. They're, they call them book lice because uh Library so frequently get a little penicillium or aspergillus or one of those kinds of molds growing in the binding. Okay. On the glue layer, and so they are associated with libraries. And uh, when I saw that that's what they were, I knew that we were drying things out because these are these are migrants looking for a better place to live. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. So you were drying out their. Uh their food source and they were going and looking for another food source and that's why they were finding them throughout the rooms yeah yeah so, so they were like okay let's go to america boys <laughs> so how do you stop that problem now uh well that that was self-correcting that lasted about uh, they i told them just clean them up they'll be gone in a in a few days and within a week they'd stop seeing them excellent excellent now before we go to the break you've kind of led into another issue that I want to touch on, and that's one of your area, your areas of expertise, and that is on moisture dynamics. You do a lot of moisture dynamics seminars around the country, and I'm curious, what are the most common misconceptions indoor environmental quality practitioners in particular? I'm not worried about building owners. We know what their misconceptions are. But what are the misconceptions that IEQ practitioners have about moisture dynamics? Oh. Boy, you know, probably the thing that's least understood about moisture dynamics is when the the phase change between uh, water vapor and um, either and liquid water or in if the climate's cold enough, frost. That those are it, that it's a, those are funny counterintuitive dynamics sometimes, and uh, and it's e- easy to to not 
understand what's going on with those. So that phase change is a tough issue, and I know we don't have time to go into detail about it, but could you give listeners a tip on where to learn more about that? Mm. You know, probably there's, there are two places I would say to go to, to check that out. One is uh, Bill Rose's book uh, about, for architects about water and buildings. And the other is John Straub's uh, and Eric Burnett's uh, book, uh, Building Science for Building Enclosures. Excellent. Uh, they both have a very good sections on these kinds of dynamics. Thank you. That's great. Great information for our listeners. What we're going to do, Terry, we're going to take a short break to thank our sponsors, and I'm going to get that microband trivia question out, and then we're going to bring you back and like to talk a little bit about green buildings, if you don't mind. Great. All right. First, before we get uh, to the break here and bring the doctor in, I want to make sure that we go back and thank our sponsors again. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryees Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryees is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Okay, thank you, Wingman. Let's get to the microband trivia question for today. This will be for May 9th, 2008. You can answer it on our website. Today's trivia question is, which former star of the TV show Mork and Mindy sued TV home improvement guru Bob Vila over construction defects? Cliff always finds some interesting questions that... Um, really match up with what we're talking about. Which former star of the TV show Mork and Mindy sued TV home improvement guru Bob Vila over construction defects? I don't know the answer on that one, so uh, we will find out. All right, let's bring our technical director, Dr. Dieter, in here for a moment. Did you unmute? Oh, you are on, dear. You're cued in. And uh, we've also got uh, Terry unmuted again. I just wanted to check, see if you had any comments or questions. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to get you a CD from Beethoven and that you have something to listen to when you drive home. All right. But anyway, Terry, I think, uh, touched on two things which were and still are very dear to me. And um, uh, one, of, one of them is really ventilation. And the other one is um, uh, tracer gas measurements. Uh, I did, I taught ventilation, I don't know for how long, maybe 30 years at the University of Pittsburgh in the School of Engineering and the Graduate School of Public Health. And uh, I, did, um, I did quite a bit of tracer gas measurement. And I took, and everybody is going to be up in arms about that, I tried uh, sulfur hexafluoride. And I tell you one thing, this is, it has a bad, uh, how do we say, a bad manager because um, SF6, that's what it is, is an incredibly stable uh, molecule, and it's one of the worst greenhouse gases we have. <laughs> Comma, however, and we touched on greenhouse gases, I think there isn't a heck of a lot around. And the damn thing doesn't uh, um, react with anything, which brings me to another question. They use this stuff as a propellant, I don't know, catalyst or whatever, 
in torpedoes. So it, it does something to something, but by and large, it's very stable. It's difficult to measure in air because it is a, you know, flame ionization and all of that doesn't work too well. So I used, instead of carbon dioxide, <laughs> at half the price of carbon dioxide, I get carbon monoxide, and I have monitors which measure this beautifully. <laughs> People are up in arms about that. Oh, my God, he's going to poison us. And well, I, I can't poison anybody with a two-minute exposure to 100 ppm of carbon monoxide. And at the time when I did those tests, I was a stupid smoker and I had about 7% of my blood tied up with carbon monoxide, which was then carboxyhemoglobin. So I wouldn't absorb anything. <laughs> 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 the, master, the master did not get any extra exposure. Uh, another thing, um, and I know Terry and uh, Joe and I, we listened to it and we heard it and we discussed it up in Westford, Massachusetts at Joe's uh, summer camp, and that is this problem with ventilation. I mean, it makes me sick. And we know all the young kids, they don't have instructors anymore. I, I, I don't think, I'm, I'm sure it's somewhere hidden on the Internet, but, you know, you've got to learn this. You've got to learn to appreciate that. And fortunately, I learned from a couple of old-timers and I taught some of the last courses at the University of Pittsburgh. I don't know what is happening right now. I'm away from it for the last 10 years. But a good friend of mine, Larry Keller, and I, we taught, I think, the last one in the Graduate School of Public Health. There's nobody there anymore. So that is great. And the other thing, and Terry mentioned it, and this is the problem when you work with CO2, don't breathe on monitor <laughs> and that is another point where somebody tried to nail me and uh, terry is a member of uh, AC, not acgih i don't know that but um, ashri and ashri had guidelines or suggestions or whatever you want to call it in the old days for a thousand ppm of co2 that was a measurement whether the ventilation was good bad or indifferent i have no problem with this until somebody tried to nail me. Somebody uh, measured 5,100 ppm of carbon dioxide in a room. It shouldn't have been there. I'm the first one to agree. But he wanted to call the undertaker because they all would be overwhelmed by CO2. And I said, guys, you ex exhale a heck of a lot more of CO2 than you inhale, so don't worry about it. It's tough to explain that to people. It's relatively easy to explained that to old submariners before we had nuclear submarines and they scrub out anything. <laughs> but they knew what carbon dioxide was all about. Anyway, I better shut up before I run over here. Well, thank you, Dieter. I'm, I just wanted to follow up with Terry. Um, Terry, is that, a, you, you know, we were going to ask this question anyway. You had started studying ventilation in residential buildings, I believe, back in the 80s. Yes, and finally now, well, Terry, too, um, he was yep. he was doing these sampling and, and studying ventilation in these residential structures. And it took until I, I don't know if I'm correct on this or not, but 2001 for ASHRAE to come out with a standard on that. Terry, is that accurate? Well, the ASHRAE divided uh, ventilation standards be between um, commercial structures, essentially non-residential structures, and 
single-family and low-rise multifamily residential building. So we, we have two different ASHRAE standards now. Be, before that, <laughs> we had um, uh, a single ASHRAE ventilation standard, and within that standard there was a, a small little section on residential ventilation. Okay. That, uh, yeah. be, be, before then. So now we have a much more uh, robust standard 62.2 and ASHRAE the the acronym police pulled you over there that's the American Society of Heating Refrigeration and Air Conditioning Engineers I was wondering what that was <laughs> that's what it was Terry all right well Dieter will bring you back for the roundup and uh, let me get really back fine. Terry what I'd like to do is talk to you a little bit about your experience with green buildings um, you were a member at least and if I'm wrong correct me of the U.S. Green Building Councils, LED, Leadership, Energy, and Environmental Design, IEQ, Indoor Environmental Quality Task Group. Um, what were the most common questions that you have to respond to about the LEAD program? I, my understanding is you help answer questions people have about how to comply with the LEAD program. What are the most common questions you get? Uh, that's a great question. The, the, we, we get questions about pretty much every one of the prerequisites and uh, credits in the IEQ section. I, I think we've had questions about every one of them. The, the ones that I end up seeing usually have to do um, with the, either with track-off mats at the entryways or, or with uh, the compartmentalizing apartments to uh, as the uh, part of environmental tobacco smoke control in multifamily buildings. Interesting. I, I didn't expect that answer. I'm, I'm curious, why do you get so many questions on track-off mats? It seems like that would be a pretty pretty cut-and-dry issue. Yeah, well, it, it, I, I think it is, but, but um, a lot of people aren't really used to thinking about that. And, I mean, I, I get those questions because I'm geeky in those particular ways. There are probably questions that the task group gets more frequently that I don't end up really looking at. I know one I saw recently where um, people were trying to do some measurements of, uh, I believe it was total VOCs. Can you talk about that a little bit, what the best way to measure total VOCs is? Uh, well, the, for for me, one of the issues, whenever I'm going to measure an air contaminant is what, what am I going to do with the with the results and uh, total VOCs, we don't really have stand, standards for, for that. We have some suggested standards and guidelines, but so much depends on well, what VOCs are actually in there. And so for, for me, I like to actually see not only the total, but what are the compounds that were actually picked up. So that, that would mean a uh, a gas chromatograph um, mass spectrometer analysis uh, in order to get to that level of differentiation. And how do you take the sample? Well, the samples uh, you you take in the way, uh, and this is all um, well well documented in the EPA um, indoor air contaminant uh, compendium. And uh, in the Industrial Hygiene Association's uh, uh, books, uh, you, you're, you're going to collect a sample by 
pulling a measured amount of air through a, uh, a glass tube that's filled with absorbent material, something that the, the organic compounds are going to cling to. And that you seal it, you pull the sample, um, and you've, me- you've carefully timed it and measured the airflow, and you've calibrated all that setup so that you, you're pretty sure that you're actually measuring the volume volume of air that you've collected, that you've sampled. And then you seal the uh, tubes up and you ship them off to the lab and they desorb the gases out of the, out of the sorbent. Um, and they, they pick them up in uh, the gas chromatograph. Okay. Now, the other question I had on the, the LEAD program is, are we, do you think we'll see more emphasis uh, in the future on ensuring that buildings are dry as a part of the you know, process in the future for certifying these buildings? I, I, I hope so. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm lobbying for it uh, because we, in order for a building to be sustainable, I think it needs to be durable. And once you have problem moisture in a building, it, it's not, it doesn't last that long. Do you, think, do you see the, any movement toward this, or is it uh, something that you're not that involved with right now? Um, well, right now is actually a good time for uh, folks involved with uh, the U.S. Green Building Council's programs to be thinking about this, because the, uh, over the last several years, the programs have been focused on Maintaining consistency between their, uh, like, uh, lead for new buildings, lead for existing buildings, lead interiors, lead residential, so that that these various programs all work well together with the same requirements. And what they're embarking on now is the next generation of guidance, and uh, and they're thinking about, as I as I understand it, they're thinking about something that's sort of like a library where you'd have a bookshelf of um, requirements and credits that, that you could get. And what ones you actually end up doing depend a lot about where your project is, how big it is, what people are doing in the building, what kind of people are in the building. So it's a, it would be a conditional set of uh, uh, requirements and credits that you could get. Since they're... they're Developing that now, it's a good time to add in the things that I got overlooked in the first um, programs and to mend things that might not be working very well for people out in the field uh, in the programs as they exist. So now it's a great time to be thinking about that. What other change would you like to see occur? Well, one one thing that I would love to see in the IEQ section is um, some credits uh, or requirements along the lines of making the building so it's difficult for uh, uh, pest species to colonize it. So that would be sort of a preemptive integrated pest control that would be designed into the building because that way we end up with, we avoid the um, the, the allergens and the uh, 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 the asthma triggers given off by the, the critters, and we all, we have pe- people are way less likely to do something silly with pesticide in the building 
later on down the road. That's an interesting comment. I, I, again, I wasn't expecting that, but uh, let me ask real quick to, as a follow-up, what are, what are a couple of quick tips that um, people could be doing that they're not doing when they're putting new buildings together to, you know, to help with the integrated pest management? Well, the first thing is uh, figure out what, what creatures are you, do you have to deal with in the, in the climate and the locale where the building's going to go. So if you're in any city, you're going to have to deal with uh, um, rats uh, and roaches because they they live in the sewer system. So any place you got a sewer system, you got the, uh, a population of those creatures to have to deal with. Um, in the Sonoran Desert, black widows in the crawl space is something you're going to have to think about. So first, it's identify the creatures you need to protect against, and, and then it's figure out how can I keep them out of my building, and if they get in my building, how can I make it hard for them to get the, their, the food that they're looking for? Because they're, they're only coming into the building to find uh, uh, food, water, and a date. <laughs> just, just like guys. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's really the, the heart of it. And, and it comes down to details like knowing that a mouse can get through a hole that's a quarter inch tall by three-eighths of an inch wide. And so any, any hole that I'm going to seal bigger than that, I need to seal it with material that a mouse won't want to chew through. Okay, those are great tips for the listeners. And now last week, the last two weeks, actually, we had uh, Dr. Richie Shoemaker on, and we were talking a lot about dampness in buildings. And I noted in your uh, CV that you did a lot of work with the National Academies of Science on dampness in buildings and health. And I'm curious, um, was this as a part of the study that came out or the publication that came out in 2004, or are you still working on that, uh, that group, with that group? Oh, that, that I wish the uh, the moisture geek uh, consultant for the the committee on dampness and health in buildings for them. So that my my role with them ended when the committee uh, published the report. And to, that was the O four report, damp indoor yeah. spaces and health. Yeah, two thousand four. Okay, and I just wanted uh, wanted to follow up on that. Was your that final report, did that, are they doing anything further at this point, or is it just done? I, I think it's probably done for, done for now. As I understand it, the way the Academy works is that they develop these reports in response to a request from government agencies. Uh, uh, like the asthma report, clearing the air in 2002, I think, was, um, I believe, a request from EPA to the National Academies to take a, a good hard look at what do we know about asthma. Uh, and so if a, a government uh, body comes to them with, with a question and a budget, then they, they assemble the team that, that, that they want to... Uh, Okay, so it would have to be. Yeah, it sounds like we had a little technical, we had a little, little uh, static on your end there, Terry. But um, I sound 
at least it sounds good to me now. What do you think, Chris? Okay. Uh, we'll let you know if that static comes back. So essentially what you're saying is that unless someone in the government like the EPA comes back to uh, the National Academies and says, hey, we need further information on this issue, it's pretty much dead for now. Yeah, that's that's the, my understanding of the way the Academy works, though. Thanks. All right. Now, I wanted to ask you, I've got a bunch of other questions here, but it um, looks like we're running a little short on time. So I'm going to pick a couple, then we're going to bring Dr. Dieter back in and do the roundup. But um, I wanted to get to, you know, you've done a lot of work on su sustainability and energy use, and you seem to have been involved in this a lot earlier than, than many other people back since, you know, the early 80s. In the past 25 years or so, um, what has changed with respect to sustainability and energy use? You know, what have we learned from our early mistakes? And, and then after that, if you would, what have we forgotten? Oh, boy, let's see. Um, what have we learned? Well, you know, tw even 20, 25 years ago, um, builders of single-family residential buildings developed pretty good ways of making the, the, the foundation, the walls, and the windows, and the um, roofs so that we had low, so we were very conservative in, in terms of fuel. Um, and what's changed has been um, improvements in manufactured uh, in, in equipment and assembly. So we've got um, uh, Energy Star appliances. We, di we didn't have that 25 years ago. The houses I was designing and building in the late 70s and the early 80s, that we could heat them for in upstate New York for le using less energy than people were using to run their refrigerator and their uh, stereos and lights and stuff. So, so that's changed. That's a big change for us. Um, Another thing that's changed is we have lots of guidance and programs out there now. Uh, so that and back then, it was a tiny, tiny fraction of uh, people who were making these really low energy use houses. And, and now, because of programs like uh, Building America and Energy Star, we have tens of thousands of houses uh, a year going up that are, that are using much, much less energy than, than uh, even in uh, a building that meets the energy code. So that's pretty, that's a, that's a big change. It's, it's, and it's two kinds. It's technological changes, better, more efficient furnaces and boilers, more efficient appliances. And it's um, social changes. The, the culture of builders has changed to embrace the kinds of things you have to do in a building to make them be low energy users and avoid the kinds of problems that come along with trying to make a low energy use building. And what were some of the mistakes we made early on? Oh, let's see. Um, probably <laughs> one of my, my first biggest mistakes was uh, um, not really understanding how small air molecules are. And so, so for example, where the uh, where the sole plate of a wall sits on the subfloor, mm. if that's maybe a hundredth of an inch crack, 
That means that every hundred inches you've got a one square inch hole. <laughs> That's a great comment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and you got maybe 200 linear feet of that, and, and and then it was, by the way, the interior walls leak into the attic as much as the exterior walls leak to the outside, and so, so that's a big hole when you add it all up. Wow, yeah, that's that's something we didn't think about, I guess, but now people are thinking about that more. Now, now that detailing is all in, like Joe Stieberg's books uh, describe exactly where you need to caulk to deal with that stuff. Uh, the Energy Star um, program has a checklist, a uh, thermal bypass checklist that that stuff is on. Uh, Building America houses are all detailed to deal with that. So it's, it's, for me, that's a remarkable change. And there's a cultural change uh, that I see generally with ecological impact. And I think it started when uh, the Austin Green Builder Program was the only U.S. program that won an award at the uh, U.N. Conference on the Environment in Rio in 1992 or three. And and after that, I, I we I, it's just been sort of a, a slow, steady growth to the point now where it's part of the daily language of. Uh, all of us here in the in America that oh we're having a, a a big environmental impact and we want to cut that down. I wanted to get one question that Cliff had uh, written up, and that was which of these uh, which of your theories or opinions do your building science colleagues consider to be the most controversial? Um. Hmm. <laughs> My my building science colleagues. Yes. Hmm. You guys don't always agree on everything, now, Terry. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Probably the thing, the, the thing that I believe that I get the most flack about from my uh, building science colleagues is is that in in the north where um, where ductwork is uh, almost never in the attic and is in the in basements that are really inside the the thermal enclosure. Yes. I, I, I don't think it's that important to air seal the ductwork. Uh, interesting. Uh, that's more or less heresy in, in the building science community. Okay. All right. That's great. I'm glad we asked that question. Let's. Uh, we're going to go to the roundup. Can you stick with us another five minutes, Terry? I, it would be my pleasure. All right. Great. We're going to the roundup. We'll bring Dr. Dieter back in and we'll wrap things up. Thank you, Chris. We got you back on the line, Dr. Dieter. Yes, sir, Joe. Good afternoon by now in Pittsburgh. Yes, sir. And uh, we, we should also still have Terry on the line. It's just the three of us this week, Dieter, so I'm going to go to you first and see if you have anything you wanted to add or any other questions you wanted oh, to ask. Do you have time for another hour or so? <laughs> well, we've got to bring uh, Terry back. I try, I try to make that very, very brief. I, I know there's a time constraint. Uh, Terry mentioned it, and I know it. I worked with uh, 
people who worked on ASHRAE committees, the American Society for Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, ASHRAE, they have the standards for indoor air and 10,000 other things. And it takes them forever. They're all non-profit. I mean, nobody is paid with the exception of the secretary. And for these guys, and some of the, I mean, most of these committees with whom I worked years ago, I mean, they are 20, 25 people. And it's incredibly tough to get those all together on a regular basis. Therefore, it takes them forever to get something for better or for worse. I'm not saying that it's good, bad, or indifferent. I just know what is happening over there, and I'm sure Terry knows about that. I do have some answers, and I'm just as frustrated as Terry is when I measure VOCs. A client calls me and said, Dieter, I think it's the VOCs in this building. I go in there. I don't smell anything. I don't see anything. Take samples, and I know what I'm going to find. And I have uh, friends of mine and colleagues of mine and peers of mine. They call me and say, Dieter, 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 I took super-duper samples, and I had them uh, analyzed by gas chromatography, that is a sensitive instrument, and behind it was a GC, a a mass spectrometer, and that can measure molecules down to parts per trillion. And And the people call me and said, I found one part per trillion or billion, let's say billion, that's good enough, one part per billion of a compound I've never seen before in my life and probably will never ever see. What is your opinion? I have no opinion. I don't know what it means. But I have a solution. I've never been in a building when I ever I measured, and I'm not saying that they're equal, if I measure one ppm or low of whatever is in the air, I'm fine. And when, whenever I go into a building and I use another uh, methodology and I get one milligram per cubic meter, I've never ever seen a problem. So, I mean, that is something you can take home. I mean, that's, that's fine. I'm also happy to report that my house uh, meets Terry's criteria for a good house. I don't seal anything, uh, any of my ductwork, and I don't need it. I have uh, <laughs> uh, ventilation in my house, and uh, so far, so good. There are many, many things wrong with my house that should have done better on the day when it was built, but I had obviously no control over it because I bought the house when it was 10 years old or something like that. I better shut up now and let somebody else talk. Well, thank you, Dieter. Thank you. And, Terry, any comments on uh, Dieter's comments, I guess? Um, well, let's see. I'm, I'm thinking that uh, I, I wonder what Dieter would think about using nitrous oxide as a tracer gas. Well, I can... <laughs> <laughs> I can't. There are a couple of other. I have a couple of other gases in mind that we could use, but the problem is, you know, you got to be able to to rent or have an instrument that measures it easily, and that was my problem when I was with sulfur hexafluoride, SF6. Uh, that yeah, it's tough. I mean, that is such a stable molecule. You can't break that sucker down. And that's why I went to something that is a little bit easier to digest called carbon monoxide. I love carbon monoxide. <laughs> but, uh, no, that is, yeah, that's, that, that, that is a problem. And, by the way, another comment. The cells of the moles are very, very similar to those of humans. So whatever we said about you know, the girlfriends and, <laughs> and, and eat, <laughs> uh, uh, in other words, women, women, <laughs> women food and sex, 
that, that kind of makes sense. I mean, you know, they may be our great, 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 great grandfathers. <laughs> A couple of things die. Well, hey, if we wouldn't do those things, we wouldn't be around anyway. Well, anything, Terry, I, I just want to ask if there's anything you'd like to add. Um, I think the only thing that I would like to add is that uh, 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 a friend of mine, uh, Ron Bailey, in uh, Florida had a case recently with um, um, uh, just a lot of formaldehyde being emitted from a, a beautiful 11-ply maple plywood. And, and we're not sure where the, the product originated, but it, it ended up in high-end cabinetry. Uh, with very very high levels in the rooms of the of the building it was in, and this it it puts me in mind of over the years I periodically have a case where something is manufactured outside the U.S. or uh, Europe, and, and maybe it's got a high lead content like we had PVC uh, <clears throat> mini blinds there in the mid '90s that had high lead content. <laughs> and so, so we periodically end up with uh, uh, a material that slips in like that. And this looks like maybe it's one one that might be doing that now. So, so uh, formaldehyde might be something that we haven't thought a lot about um, over the last ten years or so. But, but may, maybe that might be something to be thinking about again with with uh, materials coming in. What was the solution on that project? Uh, I believe everything got torn out. Tear it out, remove it and replace it. Uh, I just noticed... I, I, I second, uh, Joe, I second that one. When I said one ppm or one milligram per cubic meter, I mean, there are a couple of nasty things around, and uh, I'm not saying that one ppm or one milligram per cubic meter of formaldehyde is good for you, but I'm from the same school where Tariq, I was involved with formaldehyde and formaldehyde problems. My, oh, this is... 35 years ago, and I thought that would have finally gone away, but it didn't. Just like I thought that asbestos is going to go, and there are other outside of the United States manufacturers who supply good materials, good building products, or what good products, I should say, and they contain asbestos. Well, they don't have the regulations that we have. All right. Those are great comments, and uh, I thought I noticed a project, though, where on your CV, Terry, where there was, off, I thought it was formaldehyde off-gassing. It must have been a different product or, or project, and you had come up with some other solution for that. What other types of solutions would there be? Oh, for formaldehyde? Yes. Other than remove and replace. Um, well, sometimes you can seal formaldehyde. Um, into a, if it's being emitted from a, a product, you can co co coat it with a sealer that will lower the rate at which it's emitted enough so that the, your ven ventilation takes care of it. And I guess the other option is to try and bake it off? Um, the, the, in the literature, baking it off has kind of erratic results. Sometimes it, it seems to make a difference, and other times it always increases the rate that formaldehyde's coming out, but it, it doesn't always it a lot of times when you stop heating it it goes back down to the curve it was on before you started it appears that just lots of ventilation actually helps to get the formaldehyde out better than heating 
I see. All right. Well, I, the other thing I wanted to do before we go is just uh, see if we could get a contact, uh, a, a place where listeners could contact you if they wanted more information for about your services. Oh, sure. Um, our, uh, they can reach me uh, by email um, at terry at camroden.com. Cam Roden. And, uh, yeah, C-A-M-R-O-D-E-N is the, the spelling on that. And my phone number is 315-336-336. 7955. All right. Well, I want to say thanks to this week's guest, Mr. Terry Brennan from Cam Roden Associates. I apologize for having that uh, pronunciation wrong earlier. And also want to thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, for joining us. Anytime, and, anytime. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, always great to have both of you on. The wingman, Chris uh, Boisel, for helping us here at the controls. And I want to thank, more important than anybody, I guess, is the growing group of loyal listeners out there. Looks like we had another great group online today, and we appreciate you all tuning in, downloading the shows. We've been on a roll. We're going to continue on that roll. Please join us again next week, next Friday at noon, for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.